You're listening to Producing with Purpose, an ethical business podcast with me, Tony Corrales. We'll be speaking to some of the greatest CEOs, creatives, founders, and entrepreneurs who have established and managed companies that put ethical practices at the forefront of their mission, all whilst navigating the challenges of the business world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of Producing with Purpose. It feels good to be back on this once a week release cycle, and it was great to put out that episode with Alicia last week to re-kick things off after it had been a little bit crazy in the launch of No Skin, and I hadn't been releasing these episodes as frequently as I was li- I would like. So I'm not going to talk too much before today's episode because it's quite a long one because there is a lot of awesome content within it, and it is a personal milestone for me to release this episode. Today, I'm speaking to Joshua Katcher, the founder of Brave Gentleman. He is also the co-founder of Rind Vegan Cheese, and he runs the Discerning Brute blog. And I don't really need to say it here because you'll hear me fanboying a little bit during this chat, but Joshua was a genuine influence and inspiration for me when starting No Skin. I've been a fan of Brave Gentlemen for years. I think what they do in the vegan footwear space is amazing. I love the way that he runs his personal brand and When I was making my list of people I wanted to speak to in this podcast, he was really high up on that list. Um, So yeah, absolutely stoked to have him on the show. One thing I will say before we get into the episode is that you will hopefully also be able to see a video of this episode over on noskin.co slash podcast. So I recorded this Zoom chat that we had. If I can figure out how to export it all properly, which I'll be doing after I post this, then you'll be able to head over there and actually see Joshua and I chatting, which might be a nicer experience if you can than listening through podcast. And lastly, I want to say, uh, keep checking back for updates on this podcast. Make sure you subscribe because I've just had an email today. It's not 100% locked in, but I've got a very exciting guest in the pipeline, somebody who was also on that list of, you know, goal people I would like to speak to. It's a pretty big deal for me. And hopefully I'll be able to announce that formally in the next episode. So let's get straight into it. There is a lot of good stuff here. Introducing Joshua Catcher of Brave Gentlemen. So I'm very excited today that on Producing With Purpose, we have got Joshua Catcher of Brave Gentlemen and the Discerning Brute. As I will have just said in the introduction to this, uh, this interview, I'm very excited and it's a bit of a milestone for me to have Joshua on the show as he's been an inspiration for me when starting No Skin. So it's great to have you here, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. So we've just been having a bit of a pre-chat and we've covered that there are so many topics we could cover and so many that we probably won't get to today. Um, but one thing I do want to do is just to introduce you to the listeners of the show um, I just want to hear a bit more about the journey that you took to where you are today. And I understand as well that even before starting Brave Gentlemen, or even before The Discerning Brute, you spent a lot of time working in the media, including a stint at places like MTV. So what what was your background up to this point? My background was really all over the place. And I think that I was trying to find something that I that I felt could have impact and that could reach people. And when I, I went to school for, um, you know, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Video Art and, um, and Environmental Studies. And so I had this idea that I would be making documentary films, which, you know, now turns out 
are incredibly effective mediums for reaching people now with streaming networks and everything. At the time, you know, getting people to go watch a documentary, it's sort of like you already had to be interested in those topics. And um, I ended up in the television industry thinking that I could work my way up into a position of influence and create content that would reach people with the messages that I, that I had. And those messages were about animal rights, about social justice issues, about environmental issues, and really the connection between all of those things. And what I found at some of the major networks that I was working at was a lot of those ideas were in conflict with advertisers. And those ideas would never make it onto the mainstream uh networks and channels. And this is pre, you know, this is pre Netflix, pre Hulu. So there weren't really those, those opportunities to create really, um, you know, really niche, uh, marketed videos that, um, that spoke to a very specific audience and that also had the potential to be shared so easily. And so, I kind of shifted my focus. And in 2008, when I started my blog, The Discerning Brute, it was really an effort to open the conversation around veganism to a more mainstream masculine audience. At the time, the vegan um, and ethical and eco, as it was called, (laughs) lifestyle um, content was really geared towards a more femme audience. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. I think it's great. But um, we live in a culture, there's a dominant culture that's, you know, very much um, limiting in in what masculinity represents and, and what it... Uh, um, and so I wanted to create something that was kind of going to allow or invite mainstream, um, mainstream men and mainstream, you know, masculine presenting people into that, into that dialogue. And so, so in 2008, I launched the discerning brute and that went on for years. It's still going on, but because of that, it showed me as I was writing more and more about fashion and style, I realized how much I had underestimated fashion's impacts. And uh, fashion is a medium that I think is often overlooked and underestimated and seen as something that's not serious, something that's silly. And what I realized was that fashion is really about identity. It's about how we see ourselves, how we want to be seen. It's the literal interpretation visually of, of who we are. And in, in that is something very, very powerful. And that is, um, how we form our identities and what we choose to form our identities. And so with fashion, it can be something that is sort of overlooked, but at the end of the day, um, it's something most of us are participating in the fashion system. And it's something that, um, something that if we can connect the way that things are made with how we identify, that I think is a recipe for radical transparency, radical accountability, um, for a more ethical and compassionate and sustainable um, fashion supply chain. 
So uh, that's how I ended up making fashion because I was writing about it and I realized that this is something powerful that can reach people on a personal level, on a, on a, on a level of your own personal identity. Um, and, and, that, and then the Brave Gentleman was launched soon after because of that. That's awesome, man. That's a great, great insight into everything that's really the thought processes and the, you know, the evolution that you went through as a person into the way that you thought about things to get to this point. Yeah, I mean, fashion, fashion was something I never took really seriously, either. I, I was, uh, I was a victim of that same belief system where I thought fashion was just about fun and, you know, expressing yourself and trying to find a good deal. Yeah. And, you know, pining for that thing that might cost a little more and you have to save up for it. But it, I didn't really connect it to this idea of a global industrial complex supply chain that affects millions of workers and billions of animals and ecosystems everywhere. So that was a real revelation for me. And then when, when I realized that, I thought I knew that that was something that I needed to share with other people too, because it's the same with our food system. Uh, our food system is taken very seriously, but the fashion system is similar, yeah. but it's but it's not taken as seriously. Absolutely, and just just on the food system, there we're we're going to talk a lot about um, you know brave gentlemen today and that journey. But you've mentioned the food system there as an aside. Tell us about. You just told me that you've come in from a day of uh, flipping cheese wheels. Tell us what you're doing <laughs> in the food system at the moment in the food industry. Yeah, so about four years ago, my business partner um, Dina Desenso um, and I started a vegan soft ripened French style cheese company called Rind by Dina and Joshua. And it is, I think, hands down the best vegan cheese on the planet. We've been, we've been told by many cheese lovers who are not vegan that our cheese is delicious and they, and they love it regardless of whether it's vegan or not. And Excellent. that was sort of the goal. And I think that cheese is something that people get caught up on. I, I've, I've heard so many people say, oh, I, you know, I would go vegan, but I, I just can't give up my camembert or my blue cheese. Or There's certain <laughs> types of cheese that can't really be replicated easily in the vegan food space. Yeah. And so we set out to, to do that. We set out to make delicious, um, indulgent cheeses that would make a, you know, a French cheese lover happy. Awesome. And it's been going well so far? Um, going well to, you know, to the point where we have a really long waiting list for retailers. We have maxed out, we, <laughs> Great. we've maxed out our, our space that we're working in right now. We're, we're at capacity and we are scrambling to figure out how to scale and to move in. You know, we, we're just about to move into a larger industrial space. And we're at that stage where we're, you know, we're transitioning between a small, a little small vegan cheese operation to a big industrial operation that will be able to supply a national and soon international um, clientele. That is exciting, man. I look forward to uh, it. Might it might take a little while to get to Australia because often things do, but there's probably a chance I'll be in the US before that. So I have some friends there, it. so you'll uh, there'll there'll be some shift. You just have to know you have to know the right people. <laughs> okay, it's all about connections in the vegan cheese world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So interestingly, um, oh, a couple of things to touch on, and one 
um, going back a little bit to what you said was that you saw a real, I suppose, a gap in the market and also a gap in the presentation of ethics, ethical fashion, veganism to a more masculine audience. Um, and that's it's a similar experience that I had that led me towards starting No Skin. And as I said, that is where Brave Gentleman was an influence as well for what I was doing. I was like, these guys are doing it very well, but that's still one, you know, one player who's doing it very well. There's there's more for that. There's more opportunity for that. I'm one of these people. Um, but then as we progress the brand, and I, you know, I've had the co-founders come along with me. We have also introduced, you know, our clothing is very targeted at being unisex. It's trying to split across both. And part of that is because from a commercial perspective, we have had concern that whilst there is a gap in how much is presented to the ethical man, so to speak, there is still a very large femme audience and a very big femme market. Have you felt that targeting the masculine audience has been good for business? Or do you sometimes think that you've missed some of, you know, some growth opportunity by only targeting that audience? I think that there's a lot of temptation when you have a small brand to expand horizontally. And that mm. temptation happened to me early on where I was expanding into too many product categories. I was doing hats and, um, and outerwear and belts and wallets and, you know, um, pocket squares and, you know, and I was still one person running, you know, running everything myself and that temptation and, you know, you get customer service emails where, pe where people ask, you know, will you be making this? Can you do that? Can you make it in this color and in this style? And then there's this feeling of urgency that you have to accommodate those requests. And I think that also, the, you know, the people who make demands, the customers or the, you know, the potential customers who make demands, they tend to be louder than the customers who are happily just buying what you're offering. And it's a, I think that rule also yeah, applies to like the comment section in social media. It's like the, pe yeah. the people who are who have something to complain about or who have a gripe, you know, they're going to be somehow the loudest because the people who are just enjoying the content aren't saying anything necessarily. So. Anyway, that's not to say that people making requests is negative, but it's difficult to accommodate it when you have a very limited budget and you're very small and you don't have you don't have a lot of manpower. Um, so, yes, there there is that temptation, and I've always had in the back of my mind that one day when Brave Gentleman gets big enough, you know, maybe I'll do a heel, maybe I'll do uh, maybe I'll do something that is more femme. We've always offered our styles in a size, range that, a size range that is gender neutral. The only way that we can yeah. really accommodate doing that is through pre-sales and pre-orders. So during our pre-order windows, we open up all of our styles and sizes down to a size 36 uh, euro. And that's mm -hmm. that really opens up the door to people with smaller feet. And stylistically... The, the styles are still more on the masculine side, but I think that they're leaning gender neutral. I think that what's happening in fashion is that um, there really is a, a blurring between the lines of femme fashion and masculine fashion. I think you can still find those yeah. things if you go after the real classic definition of like what is masculine fashion and what is feminine fashion but even in those areas you're seeing people play with them and experiment with them and you know a fashion piece is a fashion piece and somebody can incorporate it into their look and make it work 
I tend to stick to classic styles because I think that that's the safest for a small business. I'm not trying to, I have some styles more recently that I've taken more risks with. You know, if somebody said to me, you have an unlimited budget, you can do whatever you want and you don't have to worry about sales. I would be making the most like wacko, weird, bizarre stuff. (laughs) And (laughs) that's my artistic inclination. I want, you know, I, I have the desire to experiment and to make really wild things. But, you know, there's that risk that those things don't sell safely. And when you have a business and you have yeah. a bottom line and you have bills to pay, you have to make some safe choices. So what I've done is I've made the bulk of my business those safe choices. And I've been starting to experiment here and there with one or two styles that are a little bit more, a little bit more experimental. But um, to answer your question, that was a very long way of answering your question. That's um, <laughs> no, great. I don't know if I would say that I've missed an opportunity. I would say that I've had to negotiate staying in business. I've been in business for over 10 years now, and there's a reason why I haven't gone out of business, and that, I think, is because I've been very precautious and very careful, and I haven't been swayed too much by the temptation to do too many things. I think that's great. And that's, it's actually something that we've encountered because we are very early days. We're in our first product runs that are coming through and it, it is hard as well. You look at your site and you think, oh, we've got, you know, six or eight products available because that's what budget permits in the first, in the first round. I think we we need more. We need to look like we have more. We need to have more offering because more offering means more people with the potential to buy. And, but there's a very fine balance. Next thing you know, you've got a warehouse full of stock and not enough people yeah, to buy it. Yeah, and then and then you're you're so busy trying to figure out what to do with that and how to how to you know how to make that money back or how to grow. And you've you've blown your budget on inventory that isn't moving. That changes the entire mm-hmm. dynamic of your business, and it really sucks a lot of the creativity and the fun out of it. Um, there's, there's already Hmm. limited amounts of fun and creativity that happen when you are the (laughs) business owner. You know, there's fantasies that people have of a fashion designer, like sitting in a studio with a model and, you know, sketching and, you know, doing fittings and, um, and just having a great time. And that, you know, that happens maybe 5% of the time, 95% of the time you're doing busy work. You're, you're, running and yeah. packing boxes and answering customer service emails and programming websites and you know it it's not glamorous but that's the funny thing about yeah. fashion is it's a fantasy the fantasy of the clothing mm. and the, the accessories it covers up the reality of the supply chain and i think the same thing goes for fashion designers there's this fantasy that it's this celebrity filled fan uh the celebrity filled party and the reality is that that's really a very very small amount of it it is and there's a there's a few people at that celebrity party at the end with the showcase while there's 95 percent of the people behind the scenes who are still in the back office making things happen and that's just not a sustainable fashion i mean that's just not a sustainable business model anymore I think that the fashion industry is drastically changing and that idea of the the party lifestyle with the hidden background of many people working really hard I think 
the demands for transparency and honesty um, are starting to really weigh down on that uh, on that formula, and starting and I think people are starting to see that formula as something that's very fake, and authenticity I think so. matters. I think that's it, and that's a big thing. I think for smaller brands as well, some of the accessible leverage that we have is to present the behind the scenes is to actually you know be on be on instagram and be showing the process and be introducing the people behind the brand as well especially when you're small enough that you can do that and you can have that connection with the customer base i think that's now what people are starting to look for more yeah yeah and it speaks to it speaks to the current era we we live in an age of transparency we live in an age of accountability and I think that if the more that the more you can reveal about the honest story about how your things are made and what they're made of and where they're made and who made them and all of those things matter. And if you know how to package that in a nice way, if you know how to write a blurb that captures the essence of what that is, that speaks to people. It's there's something poetic about it. Um, And there's also, I think, people more and more have a real keen sense of bullshit. And they're going to be able to, they're going to be able to sniff that out if if you're you know if you're greenwashing or if you're making claims that are not true yeah. or if you're pretending to be something that you're not. That typically will that will emerge. I think so, and I think there's also a bit of a. This is something that people are trying to navigate a little bit at the moment, but transa- transparency doesn't equate to perfection. You know, you can be transparent about where you're falling short or where you're trying to improve. And I think that's the part that people appreciate. They don't need you to be transparent to show how perfect everything is end to end. They're happy for you to say, hey, this is awesome. This is what we're achieving. But you know what? We're actually really struggling to improve this process or to make this bit how we want it to be. So that's what we can grow together on. And Absolutely. Work towards. I, that's the transparency. I had a real, you know, I had a moment during, during COVID. I know this is, this question is going to come up later, but I, we can revisit it or yep. you can cut it out here. But that I had this moment where I was on the verge of losing my business and I had to mm-hmm. decide whether or not to share that with people. And I said, yeah, you know, after 10 years in business, what is this going to do to my brand to, to reveal that I'm in danger? Uh, and mm. I weighed, you know, I weighed the, I, I weighed the, um, the outcomes and I decided that it was better to just be honest and everybody's struggling right now. And I think that people yeah. will, yeah. Res- I, I thought, I suspected that people would respond, um, with understanding and compassion. And that's exactly what happened. And I, I ended up, it rescued me. I, I did a stay in business sale and that stay in business sale, yeah. like really honestly saved my business. And it was because right. of, because of the honesty, because telling people that this brand that I built is a, is part of the, uh, of a community. It's, it has purpose. I got into the fashion industry to change the fashion industry. And that's true. And if, if, if we go out of business, then I'm going to lose that ability. And, uh, yeah, it was a humbling moment and it was a moment that made me realize how important communicating with customers and fans and supporters are and how, how much, um, we rely on them. Customers aren't just, um, dollar signs. They are, they are a community that is 
investing in your in the system that you are uh, building, and you have to look at them as investors. And you have to treat every single person that purchases something from you as a micro investor to some extent. Mm. No, that's great. And I think as well, that is, you know, as we as we run businesses and we you, know, you talk about the the world of fashion that you get into and wanting to be more out there at times with fashion or you could if you had the budget. But the the creativity or the sort of different approach that we're taking is that there is the underlying ethos of what we're trying to do here. It is not just a complete pure profit machine that's churning out whatever the market wants. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what people appreciate. And when you then get to that, you get to that point where you're on the edge and things aren't looking great after 10 years, it's all of that work up to that point that is finally paying off when somebody turns around and gives you, gives you that support. And I'm sure for, you know, and for myself included and for other small or ethical business owners, there's been times where they've thought, man, if I just, if I just did a regular business or if I just gave the market what they wanted, or if I just jumped on the bandwagon of this product, I'd probably make more money. But doing that route in those times where you're then facing going out of business, you've not got a community that's going to back you. It's doing this that gives you that community. I, I agree with that. I, there have been many temptations, uh, to change the business model in a way that would compromise my core values. And like you said earlier, the, the pursuit of perfection is, is an illusion. No, nothing's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Everything has an impact. Everything has consequences. But figuring out how to navigate all of that and do it in an honest way and, and, and actually use it to try to make change, people will see that. And I think that, you know, I could be making, I could be making my stuff in uh, a factory that has questionable labor standards in a part of the world that has, you know, bad, a bad record of workers' rights. And I could be getting materials that are not recycled and not organic or, you know, not, not cutting edge, like high tech materials. And I could reduce my overhead significantly if I made all those compromises and, and, but the, then I've lost the entire point of why I went into business in the first place. I'm not, yeah, I'm not here just to make money. Um, yeah. Making money is, is about keeping it going and funding that change that I want to create. But um, that's not the end all be all. And I don't really understand people who see it as the end all be all. No. I understand it's essential, but I don't think it is the 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 ultimate purpose of you know it's not the it's not the telos of of my brand yeah absolutely well we have we've sort of edged more into the the world of brave gentlemen and you did answer my question there about the you know the troubles that you encountered last year and you know from a from just i like to see the businesses in our space succeed so from that perspective i'm really happy to see that you've made it through and that the community got around you um, and then also from a personal, you know, brand advocate of your brand, I'm I'm also really pleased to see that that's, that's come through as well. Uh, it'd be a shame to not see brave gentlemen stocked in places like vegan style here in Melbourne. So, um, but one thing, so, so I'll give you a little bit of a background of what's happened for me in the last week is we got our first big delivery of some shoes arrive, you know, so we're looking upwards in the, in the hundreds of pairs. Now, this was because of the pricing we got and, you know, we, we took quite a big order on. We knew that that was a big, you know, it was a big call and it's going to take a long time to sell these. 
But as those shoes came off the back of the truck and into our warehouse, I, I feel like the weight of those shoes went onto my shoulders as I now realize we need to sell these shoes. It all became really fucking real. So, um, and so I want to talk to you about that, that time for you. So when those first products came through the door and you went from having this idea, you went from starting this business and it was all kind of the creative process, the website building, the photography, and suddenly now you need to sell. What... What did that first period of time look like for you? What was your strategy to actually start getting some shoes out of the, or some product out of the door? I think when I when I first realized, I think the reality of of the commitment to the business hit me when I started having to make decisions between taking freelance work and doing my business work, mm-hmm. and for a long time, mm-hmm. yeah my business was self-funded where I used, I used my day job to pay for my business and I invested my, I, yeah. I invested my earnings from my, my freelance work in the entertainment industry um, into inventory. And you know, I'm not somebody, I didn't grow up with money. I, I don't have rich parents. I, I, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have a, I don't have a trust fund and I don't, I'm not, a, I'm yeah. not a millionaire. And, um, when you look at the fashion landscape and you see who your competition is, you suddenly realize that you are up against people who do have those things. Children of celebrities, people who are, you know, from society families and, you know, very wealthy, powerful individuals um, who start fashion brands and even they don't succeed sometimes. And um, I, I think that that's when it kind of when I started looking at who who I was trying to compete with and who who's which brands I wanted to be alongside in the stores, um, that idea really kind of hit me hard. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this if I don't have those <laughs> kinds of resources, yeah. if I don't have those connections, if these people who have these crazy connections and uh, you know practically unlimited budgets if they can't if they're if they're not doing it like what what makes me think i'm going to be able to do it and i think you really Mm. just have to if you got if you get into something with a purpose you have to constantly remind yourself and come back to that purpose and and say to yourself why did i get into this because it's so easy to get distracted and like off on a tangent and then you're doing something else and then you're, you're like oh wait 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 yeah. That's not why I'm here. And then you have to kind of, you know, rein it in and, and get back to that narrow, narrow focus. And um, when I when I first got my very first collection, it was in it was in collaboration with an existing uh, footwear brand, because I okay. in that way, I was lucky. Um, I had friends that worked at. Uh, have you heard of uh, the store Mooshoes in New York City? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's this vegan this vegan footwear store, Moose Shoes, that has been around forever, and um, they're really pioneers in the vegan footwear space. And they have an in-house brand called Novakas. And I approached them and said I wanted to I wanted to have a footwear brand and I wanted to try some things out. And would they be willing to collaborate with me and let me design a collection? And so um, they, they said yes, and that's how I got started. Was with um, people who had some connections mm-hmm. and who had some stability and kind of knew what they were doing. And, and I, I was essentially, I learned from them and eventually I was yeah. able to kind of break off and, and, and go my own direction. Um, but yeah, I think the weight of when I go into my warehouse and I see all of those, um, 
and I see all of those shoes. <laughs> you, I try not to think about it too much. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I try not to think about it too much. It's it's a lot. Yeah. I, I I think I'm really good at not allowing things like that to affect me, which is how I maintain my sanity. Yeah, I think. I think that's a big part of it. And that's, that was kind of the, you know, I had my, I had my four to six hour meltdown. Um, and then uh, that maybe is a little bit far, but you know, I, I had that and I thought, you know, this is, it's fine. I, I actually don't need to, I don't need to worry about that. Right. You know, right. This second you, you worry about one, one pair at a time, one sale yeah. at a time, one day at a time. You take it one um, thing at a time. And that's, uh, and that's all you can do. You're you can't force things to happen. You can, you know, you can put things on sale. You can run special events. You can try, you can, you can pay for advertising. You, there's so many things that you can do to get the word out, but it really, it's got to find its own footing. No pun intended. Um, it's got to, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it really, it's going to find, you're going to find your own, your own uh, pace and your own. And, and that's the thing that I love about fashion now too, is that the calendar, the fashion calendar really doesn't mean much anymore. This, this yeah. idea of sticking to seasons and, uh, and, and having to release a new collection, you know, every certain number of weeks or months. Um, there's so many people who just ignore the fashion calendar now. And it's like, when I when I make a new style is when I make a new style. I'm going to release it when I release it, and you'll know, and I'll be, I'll announce it. And the pressure to show up to Fashion Week or to have something ready for press on a specific date—that is the kind of stuff that drives me crazy. And I have always resisted that. I have always pushed back against <clears throat> those demands because I feel like they're unrealistic and they really make people go mad. They also make you compromise that little bit of creative process that you do have. If you're trying to rush things through or you're trying to meet the demand for a season or for an event, you know, it's it's the one bit where we get the chance to flex some creativity and take some time and put something out there. You don't you don't want to be forced into that process. Yeah. As well. And it pushes you into a place where you're not a fast fashion brand. You're not you're not one of those big yeah. box stores and you can't compete with those big box stores. They release 52 collections a year they release a, a new collection every week and more some of them are doing 60 collections a year you can't compete with something like that as a small business it's impossible and you you will you will be very unhappy if you try to do that um <laughs> Absolutely. yeah it's so what what i always come back to is it's about for me it's about quality it's about making something right making it well making sure it lasts and um, and really just exploring how to improve something over time. We re-release styles. We have our core collection, and I'm always okay. making tweaks to them and improving them and changing this and changing that and, and you know, adding a little bit of this or taking away a little bit of something else. And you, the, I think those sort of micro design changes, um, you... It's, it's a way of, of having product evolution. Um, mm. It's a way of allowing your products to find the, their best form. And maybe there is no permanent f best form for your products. Maybe they always will be slightly fluctuating depending on the time. But yeah. I think as far as performance and quality and durability, those are the things that you have to do well when you're a small business. 
Because if you're just going to make, you know, cheap crap, then that's, you know, that's going to catch up. Yeah. And then you're also competing with, like you say, you know, 95% of the, well, maybe not 95%, but a lot of stores on the high street that are also churning out cheap crap. It's a harder market to be part of as well. Yeah. And those stores, those stores that like to copy small designers and they like to steal styles and, you know, take things off the runway and, and, and remake them in a cheaper way, they can't replicate, they cannot replicate quality and no. transparency and, you know, and ethics. They can't replicate ethics. And if that if no. that's part of what being a small brand has to be about today, you can't. You have to make something that is impossible for a, a bigger company to steal from you. You know, maybe they'll steal the style and the color, but they can never steal how you've made it and the integrity with which you've made yeah. it and how much you've paid your workers and how you know and what in what what new technologies and new materials you're investing in and and if those are the things that your customers are buying from you if that's a part of why they're buying it from you they're not going to go over to that store because it looks similar yeah and it's it's as you've said before as well you know it's hard to replicate that quality and although they have got some leverage to get closer for cheaper yes you know, I've, of course I've heard you say in interviews before how and it's the same for us the the cost we pay for for a pair of jeans in production to do you know recycled salvage denim that's made you know made by people where people are treated fairly and the systems are good it costs me more to have one pair of these jeans made than it costs me to go and buy a pair of jeans from a major chain store on the high street people don't realize that having a sample made is like thousands and thousands of dollars (laughs) yeah it's been a fun process we're just taking a quick break here and as i've mentioned before no skin is now officially live this is a real labor of love that over the last year my co-founders and i have been working on and we'd love you to head over to noskin.co and check it out We're an ethical vegan brand producing footwear and other garments, and we really appreciate you coming over, checking it out, showing your support, sending us some love, following us on Instagram, all of the things that you can do to help. And of course, if you like what we're doing, then feel free to make a purchase. You can use the code PWP10 to get 10% off your first order. Thanks very much. One thing I wanted to touch on as well is, you know, we've talked a little bit there and you said about paying for advertising and some of the sales channels. So you've you've actually gone through what I would class the three primary sales channels. You've you've sold online, as you still do, obviously, and e-commerce being a big part of the business. You've had a store, but I believe you don't have your store anymore, um, although you may be looking to go somewhere else. And you've also done wholesale distribution. So, for example, I can go to a store here in Melbourne and I can buy Brave Gentleman shoes. Uh, what would you say, I suppose, roughly how much... Like, what are the percentages that each has given you for the business, if you're happy to share? And also, what would you say the pros and cons are of those different sales channels? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I'd say that those percentages were always in flux. Um, when I started, I was yeah. only doing e-commerce, and then I opened a store. And at the same time, I took on a wholesale partner that was that was producing and distributing wholesale. And so it's really hard to look at those numbers because nothing was happening simultaneously. Things were, and then by the time yeah. the wholesale kind of took off, I was closing the store because of COVID, and uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. When I had the store open, though, I was surprised. I didn't expect the store to do as well as it did. I expected the store okay. to be, I expected the physical store to be more of a showroom and just kind of a, a proof of concept and a, and a home office to work out of and, and to showcase, you know, to yeah. have events and to showcase new collections and really to just have a, have a physical advertisement for the brand that was visible on a street where I knew that there were a lot of creative professionals walking by on their way to work. Um, what I didn't expect mm. was that a lot of those people were, were going to stop and come in and buy things and had no idea that it was vegan. And that was always really okay. fun, that conversation where people would come in yeah. and they would try on a pair of shoes and they would be like, this is such nice leather. Where did you get this? What is this? And <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually vegan. And then they are just flabbergasted. And uh, it's really funny to, I, I guess I shouldn't say funny. It's really rewarding to change people's perception like that. And mm, there's a reason why I don't slap the word vegan on everything because, you know, it's, it's in yeah. the fine print. You'll, if, if you're vegan, you'll find it, you're looking for it. But if you're not vegan, it's not going to yeah. be there to hit you over the head and make you feel like this is not for you because you're not vegan. So my shop, um, I didn't put the word vegan like plastered in the window and I, it was subtle. And I think that because of that, yeah. people felt welcome to come in. Whereas I think, when it comes to fashion or a certain, th you know, and maybe, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just jaded because I've been vegan for 23 years and there was a time where the word vegan was, you know, a bad word. People would yeah. look at you like you were from another planet and that there was something wrong with you. You were, that you were giving up all pleasure in life. <laughs> <laughs> if you were yeah. vegan. Yeah, I've been there. And yeah. I think that things have changed now. I think that it's not as it's not a dirty word anymore. I think it's becoming an aspirational mm. word and that's exciting. So, I've still got to warm up to it a it bit. It is. I think I'm the same and you know, it's it's been a long long time for me as well and it was it was like, you know, vegan was if something was labeled vegan, it meant lower quality and that's part of the purpose of our brand coming in is to show that something that's vegan can actually be superior quality it's not a sacrifice and then the whole food movement the whole food movement got the term plant-based and suddenly that was way better than using vegan it's like well this is plant-based that's that's great and I was like, is there a is there a fashion equivalent can we you know it's, there's it's a lot of there's a lot of missing clothing. uh yeah we we've got a lot of work to do in the marketing department for for fashion yeah. i think when we use words like fake and faux and alternative material wise, I think we're immediately, mm. we're immediately mm. being submissive and we're immediately devaluing our own products because a lot of those materials outperform traditional animal materials, durability, um, weather resistance, longevity, comfort. These are high tech materials. Yeah. We're not talking, we're not using PVC anymore. And I think there's this idea among yeah. among people who love fashion that vegan fashion is just, you know, another word for cheap plastic crap. And yeah. I have had I've had so many conversations trying to uh, dispel those myths. And I've spoken on panels specifically about those things. And I, I have conversations with environmentalists all the time about how you know, you're not looking at the data when it comes to sustainability. If you think leather, if you think leather is biodegradable, if you think leather is natural, if you think leather outperforms something like polyurethane-based leather, then you're not, you're simply 
you, you're, you've been very effectively marketed to. You, you're not looking at the real data. Yeah. And it's an ongoing process, and we have a lot of work to do. And I'm glad you used the word superior, because that's something that I've been pushing for a while, where we have to talk about these materials in that way. We have to say, this is superior mm. leather. This is future leather. This is you know, innovative, innovation. This is, uh, the, we have to put positive, forward-looking, aspirational words in association with these products in order to be honest. Yeah, I think so. And and that is something I actually picked up from what I had from you saying before is the the negativity of saying fake leather. And I really, really stand by that. I think that's so true. And I think I was on the cusp of using it or I have used it when explaining to people what this brand is. It's like, no, that, that really is not the way to go about it. Um, and one thing there, we're, we're sort of darting around, but you keep you're answering my questions before I get there. It's great. You make my job easy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but we're, you've spoken a little bit there about the environmental impact. And actually, in researching this, one thing I heard you say, which actually is, you know, I'll take it and use it, but it also resonated with me a lot, was there's always the discussion. And even before we've launched, we've had the, yeah, but leather's more sustainable or, yeah, but you're making things out of petroleum-based materials and that's bad for the environment. But as you've said, which is such a good rebuttal to that is this is not a single use plastic we're not talking you know we're not talking straws or coffee cups here we're talking something that you can wear for years and years and years yes um there's that sorry go ahead well i was gonna say yeah tell me a little bit more about um you know your your i suppose your perspective on the environmental impact of leather versus um something like microfiber pu i have had to change the way that I approach this topic, because when I talk about it from a place of passion, you can argue with it. But I've had to transform this discussion into being about data and science and the 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 evidence and full stop, yeah. because you can't argue with that. And I'm on the board of directors for a really great organization called Collective Fashion Justice, whose founder is actually in your neighborhood. Um, do, you, uh, okay. do you know Emma Hackinson? No, we'll talk about that. Yeah, well, t- <laughs> you, you should meet her. She li- I think she lives uh, in, I'm pretty sure she lives in Melbourne. Um, that, awesome. Um, so, you know, Emma started Collective Fashion Justice, and I'm on the board of directors, and um one of my one of my projects, Circumfauna, is um, a project that's now under the Collective Fashion Justice umbrella. And what we're doing is we're looking at fashion material impacts, and we are only using um, research and data that is you know coming from reputable sources, and that is um, you know studies and um, organizations that only deal in science and uh, <laughs> and that's sort of what it's had to become because I can't tell you how frequently I've had that conversation there's this myth and it's so it's so um, it so permeates our culture that plastic is um, the number one fashion problem and that anything vegan is cheap crap made of plastic and that somehow leather and wool and fur and animal materials are avoiding fossil fuel inputs, which, which is not true. If yeah. you take um, a leather hide from a, from a steer, that seven pound hide, fossil fuels went into making that. 
it might not end up in the final product, even though there, you know, a lot of leather is coated in, in things like plastics and they're treated with petrochemical um, preservatives and dyes and agents. And the leather industry is just so, so toxic and the evidence is there. And it has such a huge environmental impact from land use, forest clearing, you know, impacts on biodiversity, impacts on water pollution and air pollution, on human health, obviously on the animals. And then you compare it to something like polyurethane-based leather, and you realize that the amount of fossil fuels that go into making PU leather is actually less than goes into making animal skin leather. It, it becomes, It's a different conversation. And it's about, yeah. I think, confronting the mythology, undoing undoing the uh, the marketing education that people have in this area, um, and the, the sort of hatred that we have for... Uh, polymers. Plastic yeah. is a problem. Plastic hands down is a problem. We have to solve that problem. But is it a worse problem than something that is being clearly shown to have bigger, more harmful impacts? I don't think so. And that is a difficult kind of flipping of the script that, that we all have to do. But you can't do it if you're not armed with, with the data. And so if you want the data... Go to go to circumfauna.org, go to collectivefashionjustice.org, and we have the data like laid out there for you. Awesome. And we'll put those links as well in the show notes so that people can um, can get onto those and have a look at it. And I think look, it's it's all there and it's a lot of what I've been reading into as well and studying because I'm more and more coming up into these discussions as well. And plus it comes from an area of, you know, very strong personal interest for me. But I think a big part of it as well is similar to the the situation we encounter with food is it challenges people's like long established beliefs. Yeah. You know, nobody, I know Tesla, for example, if you buy a Tesla, it's, it's not real leather that lines the seats. It's microfiber PU. Nobody's kicking off and telling Elon Musk to start using real leather because it's better for the environment. It's because they think that leather shoes are better. It's only when it's only when you are threatening a symbol of power that, those things become really focused in on. And I, I think when you see something like, um, when you see something like future fur trying to replace conventional animal fur, um, people really get up in arms about, you know, what, what are the impacts of this, of this synthetic fur? Yeah. And it's like, are you, are you also going after like the toothbrush bristle industry and the carpet industry and the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the stuffed animal like teddy bear industry? And, you know, there's plenty sure, of, yeah. synth there's plenty of plush synthetic materials out there, but there's a reason that you're getting really up in arms about these, you know, these faux fur coats. And it's because it's threat yeah. it's threatening a luxury status symbol. It's it's about exclusivity and maintaining exclusivity. And it's a when something is a threat to power structures, people may not even be realizing that they're defending those power structures because it it just doesn't it doesn't compute. Um, yeah. And and a lot of these fur companies, you know, whether it's a company like Canada Goose or whether it's a more traditional luxury company, they are also using polyester linings yeah um hang tags um and care care labels um plastic bags and hangers at the factory there you know polyester thread there is there are there are plastic polymers all throughout the supply chain and it isn't until it's a visual replacement that is threatening a power symbol that people suddenly care about it
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we'll we'll move on from it. But one thing I <laughs> let's I only just talk about that I saw. Well, I, and I could for a long time, and I just have to bring up another one, I, another <laughs> quote of yours that I saw is how um, you know people then complain about well when you wash something and the microplastics going in, and as you said, people aren't washing something that's got an, a you know a fur alternative trim or a future fur trim as much as they're washing their spandex activewear, which is far worse. Yes. You know, it, it really does come down to that pre-established understanding. It does. So, and look, we're um, not, I don't think either of us are defending virgin polyester here by any means. Like, yeah, it's a problem. Let's replace it with bioplastics. Let's replace it with something that's yeah. going to biodegrade in an aquatic ecosystem. Let's solve that problem. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that plastic and microplastics are fashion's number one problem and that this is the issue that is deserving of all the attention and all the resources, which is sort of what's happening in the mainstream sustainable fashion community. Plastic has taken yeah. over the, you know, all of the attention when leather is worse. It's worse than plastic. Like I, when, I, when I tell that to people, they just can't, they just, I'm like, get it through your head. We need to be giving, <laughs> we need to be giving leather yeah at least the same attention that we're giving plastic at least absolutely awesome we could uh, another episode will go even further into that one um, <laughs> got up on my soapbox so, there. yeah no it's great that's exactly what i want to hear on this show so um let me just have it so something i want to circle back to then a little bit is um your personal brand and that's another thing that I found interested in follow interesting when following you and something that effectively this is exactly what I'm doing now is developing my personal brand in line with the company that I founded. Um, was was that an intention? So, for example, Brave Gentleman is Brave Gentleman by Joshua Catcher. And as you've said before, you are not, you know, you're not a fashion designer by trade, but you're associating your name with that because whilst you may not be a fashion designer, you have positioned yourself as a thought leader in the space. So was that a kind of conscious decision to start making these connections to develop your personal brand or has that just come naturally over time? I think it's a little bit of both. I think I realized that I had ideas and I was living a life that I felt like if I could share, if I could, sh if I could give people a look into how I'm living my life, that it could serve as an example. And that would happen, you know, in 2008, when I launched The Discerning Brute, I thought that that was really important at the time because mm. um, showing people that you can be enjoying life while being vegan, yeah. that you could be thriving while being vegan, that you could be healthy and an athlete while being vegan, that you can um, have cool clothes and, you know, eat at nice restaurants and lead, yeah. you know, lead the good life. That what does the good life mean now that we have all this additional information? How do we define the good life in general anymore? Mm. I think this notion of the good life is really embedded in this, you know, mid 20th century nostalgia for, you know, for a time when it, it was right after World War II and it seemed like there were endless possibilities and, um, and there were all these in innovations happening. And that good life was about acquiring this very prototypical, you know, nuclear family, very, you know, heteronormative with, you know, getting a house and a car and having, you know, having all that. And that's just so that that's so out of date now. And, and, 
and yeah. actually pr- probably harmful. So what does it mean today to lead a good life or the good life? And I think that mm. we're all in the process of deciding that and determining that and, and redesigning that as we should. Civilization yeah. in general is a project that we're all participating in. It's not, it's not a given. We're, we're, we're all working on mm. it. So we can decide how things go. And uh, <laughs> sorry to take it out to that macro level, but um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, com- it, it comes down to that. It comes down to like, we are the, you know, we're the designers of our own, of our own fortunes and um, mm. no one else is going to, no one's going to come, you know, no one's going to come rescue us from all the problems that we've created. <laughs> so we have yep, to design a, a new good life. And I hope that brave gentleman is part of that. Um, I know that it's a really early, it's not, it's far from perfect. It's not a, it's not a final solution for any of these problems. Um, but it is a, a step in the right direction. Excellent. And I think, yeah, it's just, it, it comes down to what we were talking about earlier as well is it's part of your transparency. It's part of you sharing what, what it means to you and therefore getting other people to feel inspired and get around it as well as by seeing your personal brand come through in the company itself is what separates you from a company that may have more budget, but they haven't got, they haven't got the person behind it in the same way. I would, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I, yeah, I think if you have a person attached to a brand and there's risks, obviously. There's sometimes things where I'm like, oh, I shouldn't post that on my personal account because um, mm. it could affect my business. But I often, I'll yeah. often, I'll often override that and I'll say, you know what, this is authentically who I am, and I'm going to post it. And if I lose some customers, yeah. you know, screw them. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you'll probably gain some more loyal ones along the way, anyway. Yeah, I mean, there's people who, you know, there's people who unfollow me every time I post a photo of myself with my husband, and I'm just like, if you don't realize at this point that I'm queer, like ten years <laughs> into my brand, or if that's what's if that's what's putting you off from like buying a pair of shoes, then like you've got other problems. But um, that's it. you've got your own shit to deal with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so I want to talk a little bit as well. And yeah, we, we touched on it before we hit record that I've been reading fashion animals, which is a, it's an amazing book that I recommend people check out and there will be a link to it in the show notes, um, for this podcast as well, which you can see at noskin.co slash podcast. Um, but I recommend fashion animals one, because, you know, let's, let's get around other people who are putting the time and effort into making these wonderful, um, bits of media for us to consume but also because this is genuinely one of the most beautiful books I own. And I, I really mean that. It's so well put together. The imagery is awesome and it's clearly a labor of love. So massive shout out for everything that you've done for that book. I'm really enjoying it. Um, and I'd love to just hear a little bit about the the journey to actually creating that book. Because again, one day I'd love to publish something. It's been a you know something I've wanted to do since I was a young kid. And yeah, I'd love to know how you actually got to that point of publishing Fashion Animals. Yeah. Um, um, let's just pause there for a second. Is it getting too dark? Should I turn the light on? Yeah, it might be good. (laughs) So, um, the journey of writing the book. Um, well, where do I begin? (laughs) I think the book, (laughs) the book idea started when I started writing in 2008 and I was like, I'm, 
I've been, I'm writing a lot and I'm writing about fashion and I'm writing about what's happening to animals in the fashion industry. And I was covering two main areas. One of them was masculinity um, as it, as it relates to uh, veganism. And I was writing about fashion as it relates to veganism and that fashion, I, I ended up getting recruited to teach at Parsons. Um, and it was because I started the brand and because I was doing, I was using innovative materials and I was speaking and writing about it. And uh, I became an expert in this area. Um, and they saw that and they valued it and they, they hired me to teach and I taught there for several years. And while I was teaching there, I had access to really great research resources, um, fashion mm. archives and a, a really great fashion library and, um, access to all of these magazines uh, going back to their inception, like I, I was able to research Vogue going back to the 1800s, and yeah. um, just being able to do all of that and and do it under the roof of one of the top design design schools in um, in the world, it felt really fortuitous. Um, it felt really magical, mm. and I was like, this is the time that I need to buckle down and and do this research and do this work. So. I would go in early before class and I'd spend a few hours in the library working on the book. And I just had to chip away at it because I was so busy running a business, teaching, you know, doing freelance jobs. And so I chipped away at the book, you know, two hours here, two hours there, whenever I could, whenever I could catch. But it's so hard to write in that way, getting, (laughs) getting into the flow when you're, when you're a creative person or even when you're not a creative person and you're just trying to get a a task that requires attention accomplished. You know what I mean? Like when you get into the flow and you're like, you know, you're listening to music and you're just like, you're going and you're doing it and you're not interrupted. Getting to that place is so delicate and so hard to do. And so when there's distractions and there's too many things going on, I think I probably could have written the book in two years instead of five years if I was doing it full time and I yeah. had and I wasn't worried about paying my rent or anything else, but it took me five years to write the book. I'm proud of that because it's, I yeah. did it. It's done. Yeah, absolutely. It's in the world. Uh, it's an achievement. Yeah. I, th- I think, you know, I'm sure there's people out there who are published many books and they see it as their, you know, they see it more as their day to day. But for somebody who's not a published author and does something like that. And it may be, hopefully not, but it may be a once in a lifetime. It does feel like that. I I toy around with writing another book again, but at the end of my first book, I said, I said to my husband, I was like, do not ever let me write another book. That was, that was (laughs) hell. (laughs) But yeah, so many, I think there's so many micro achievements in writing a book. One actually sitting down and getting those repeated moments of focus to actually write the book the research as well which is clear and that's something I found when I was reading I was like damn he's done a lot of research here this is you know every page has been you know really well researched that's where the effort has gone in so yeah so many small achievements to come to one very big achievement at the end that's awesome you know I could write a I could have written a book that was just like be nice to animals in the fashion industry and, and here's why but I wanted it to I wanted to I wanted it to be Sorry, I wanted it to be a story that sort of told itself in a timeline, you know, Hmm. I didn't want to have to be the narrator necessarily. I wanted to say, look at all of this evidence that this story has been has been being told 
that sounds really grammatically weird. Yeah. I swear I'm a, right, a published author. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was going to say, great, great author. But <laughs> that, story, <laughs> that story was being told throughout history. And if you find mm. the right quotes and the right articles, and you, you can find that story will lay itself out there. And that's what I wanted to yeah. do. And the images, that was the most fun part, was, was looking through image archives for um, animals and um, finding yeah. things that were just shocking. Like that Vogue mm. cover of the woman you know, spearing the polar bear to With death. The when I, oh, when I yeah, saw yeah. that, I was just like, what? How, how, could you imagine if this were a Vogue cover today? There, people would be like, there would yeah. be outrage. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's just so many gems and, and also people, meeting people who helped me on the book. Mm. Um, archivists and historians and, you know, fashion, uh, fashion academics and people who really believed in me and believed in what I was doing. And then there was also the, the people who didn't believe in what I was doing. I got turned down by so many yeah. publishers where they just yeah. said, I don't really understand what this book is about. I don't, I don't get why, <laughs> why you're doing this. Like, what do you, what do you actually have to say? And mm. when that made me so much more determined, I turned into a little bit of a, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a little competitive. And when, when I get a challenge <laughs> like that, I'm just like, well, now I'm really going to do it. <laughs> and I'm going to do yeah. it better than I was before, just to spite you. <clears throat> yeah. No, I think that I can empathize with that. There's always, some, sometimes you need that little bit of a, you need that bit of rejection to fire you up for the success. Yeah, yeah, you need that fire um, for sure. Absolutely. Cool. So we're um yeah, we're we're getting through and as I said there's so much to cover and so much we won't today. So I will start getting towards wrapping up because I'm also grateful for you giving up your Friday evening as well. Um Well, there's so I'm many sure unlike Australia, there are uh there's nowhere to go because of our country has figured say, out yeah. the COVID problem. So my friend, <laughs> you're looking at my Friday night. Okay. Well, fair. <laughs> I don't feel so bad then. Um so a couple of questions I just want to, you know, we've talked a lot about the wider industry and we've very closely, or well, we've come near to talking about this, but um, something I've been speaking to recent guests on the podcast as well, who come through the food sectors or come through fashion as well, is speaking about those major brands at the moment who are now starting to potentially see the gap in the market and release vegan products. So be that someone like Adidas or New Balance who are releasing vegan sneakers um, or even down to Hermes recently, who have released a vegan leather bag, um, which is, you know, quite a big move in that space. Um, I suppose, what are your thoughts on the impact that this has from a business perspective in terms of is it taking customers? Is it bringing new customers? But also then from the ethical view, for for example, I know that Hermes are trying to have a like 500,000 unit crocodile farm here in Australia so that they can effectively make their exotic skin bags whilst in the same month they're releasing a vegan bag. So, I mean, there's a whole... It's not even actually a vegan bag that, that they released. It's a... Oh, really? It still has, uh, it still has calfskin leather uh, handles. So it's... Ah, okay. It, it's a bag that has some mycelium-based leather, you know, on the body, but it still has um, the veal of the leather world, uh, calfskin leather on, on the yeah. handles. So... Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's tricky. I feel like it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster when I think about it because Mm. I would love to, I would love to just put myself out of business if all of these, if every brand went vegan and, and invested in, 
a more ethical and compassionate supply chain. Um, I just think that a lot of these brands like Hermes, they do it because it's, it's about the trend of the moment. They, they also see the future. They're not, you know, they're not dumb. They see that leather is becoming obsolete and they, they're strategizing to, to, to save themselves. Um, but at the same time, the, the people who are there, their hearts aren't in it the same way that somebody mm-hmm. like you or somebody like me or somebody who's running a vegan fashion label, like we are driven by our passion for, um, for, for animals, for the environment, for workers, w- what have you. Um, and I think that you can't, you can't really replace that for, with a, with a luxury brand, just, you know, doing, doing mm-hmm. one or two things. There's an advantage to it happening because it gets attention it creates demand. Yeah. It creates value around um, around that product. You know, I think about it in the same sense that I think about blockchain, like you know, cryptocurrency, where it's you know, it, it only it's only valuable because we decided that it's valuable. It's, it's not an actual physical yeah. thing. And um, on the other hand, you have these items that are actual physical things and they're, they're often undervalued. And when a brand that represents value, um, when, mm. when a brand that represents luxury starts using it, suddenly the, the, you know, how much that product is worth starts to skyrocket. And yeah. um, a couple of things happen, unfortunately. One thing that happens is a lot of these innovative materials developers sign exclusivity uh, sign exclusivity deals with big brands. Mm. So you have all of the latest innovations being hoarded by the luxury brands, and then small brands like ours don't have access to them. Mm, and then we have right. to wait in line to be able to use these innovative materials when we're the people who've been pushing for that change to happen for years and years and years. And then we don't get the payoff because from a business standpoint, you know, it makes sense why somebody would want to go make a bag with Hermes instead of making a bag with brave gentlemen. I mean, I get it. Yeah, I get it, but it doesn't suck any less that I'm not also allowed to, (laughs) you know, use some of that material. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a thorn, but I'm happy it's happening overall. I'm happy that there are really great innovations that are happening. I'm happy that brands that would typically scoff at, you know, the idea of vegan fashion are now finally warming up to it and feeling feeling good about it. Um, yeah. But do I wish that I was getting access to all of these things and being able to benefit from them from the from the the labor that I've put into <laughs> to this movement? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like, you know, maybe Hermes can just write me a check. (laughs) Maybe. And thank you as well for pronouncing that properly. As I was talking about it, I was like, you know, I really should have figured out how to pronounce this. Oh, I didn't even notice. You didn't pronounce uh, it correctly? (laughs) No, but it's, uh, I'm not a, not really in a, it's not really my world of fashion. Um, But no, anyway, but no, I can, I completely agree. And it's, I think there's a couple of really interesting points. I mean, I've, back and forth on this a lot. Um, but yeah, there's some, the exclusivity thing I hadn't actually really considered so that, you know, that is a, that is a concern, I suppose, as we, we think about using these leather alternatives or, you know, these plant leathers to an extent, 
um, that they can start dominating that market. But but also, as you say, they they are now attributing the value to a product that people have sat there and said, oh, no, it's cheap plastic crap. Well, it's like, actually, if these guys can use it, then obviously now suddenly people are appreciating that you could have a bag for $1,000 and it's perfectly fine. Um, so it has its pros and cons for sure. And I suppose there's also the element as well where I'm I'm just glad to see that they also perceive there to be a market for it. And it's not just me wildly hoping that there is yeah and for the and for the actual material innovators it's good for them because then they have a big brand behind them and they get they get the additional resources and probably investment to scale up their production Mm. and they get to do it with a heritage brand that um yeah that, that and that's that's probably exciting you know i've i've gone through similar desires myself i would love for brave gentleman to get scooped up by a bigger brand to be you know if we were acquired by a, a larger brand that has some legacy that would give me the ability to make more things to make um yeah. and to have just to have more resources in general and even if it was a non-vegan mm. parent company like i'm okay with that like sure i'll use i'll use your resources to to you know to grow a vegan yeah to grow vegan uh, fashion and and make it more make it more prominent um yeah that would be nice and that's something that i'm something that i've i have an ongoing you know conversation with uh, with various companies where I'm like, should I, you know, should I sell? Shouldn't I sell? Like, should I, should I be yeah. acquired? <laughs> so um, maybe one day you'll see a, you'll see a press release that I got, I got acquired <laughs> by, uh, by Gucci or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it definitely a big, it, it would be a big day for the ethical business industry. And that's, that's exactly what would make the difference. Um, so to sort of start finishing off, I'll pass over to you in a minute, obviously, to um, tell people about what you've got coming up, where they can check things out and, you know, any ways to support. But I'm not sure if you saw uh, in the email I dropped you, but there was one question that I've been finishing off a lot of these episodes with. Um, and that is, if you were able to pay, if you were able to post a Facebook status that would be pinned front and center of every member's news feed for 24 hours, uh, what would what would you post? <laughs> oh, I should have I should have spent more time thinking about that one. Um, <laughs> there's there's things that I want to post that are like about right now, and then you know there's things that are like you know much more ethereal that are just about life in general. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think because of what we were talking about so much, I would I would just post leather is worse than plastic with a link to the data. <laughs> yep, done. Good deal. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So Joshua, over to you. Tell us, um, you know, tell us what you've got coming up, how people can support any links we'll include in the show notes as well for people to go and check out, you know, yeah. your, your chance, chance to plug away. Um, I've got a lot of stuff coming up. The first thing is yeah. uh, I've got some new footwear collections that'll be, that'll be launching a pre-order, um, in the next few weeks. So that will be at bravegentleman.com and on our Instagram page, brave underscore gentleman. I'll also be reposting it on my personal page, The Discerning Brute. Um, I have a um, new products with my cheese company, uh, my vegan cheese company. Um, so you can follow us at rind.cheese on Instagram. And our website is rind.nyc. That's R-I-N-D. Um, cool. I am, as I mentioned, um, I'm on the board of directors for Collective Fashion Justice. 
I highly recommend following Collective Fashion Justice on Instagram. Um, it's a really wonderful resource for the interconnection between um, the environment, um, human rights, and animal rights in the fashion through the fashion lens. Um, Circumfauna also is part of that, and we have our own Instagram page for that. So that, that's uh, mm-hmm. at Circumfauna, C I R C U M F A U N A. Whew, I, I feel like there's 10 other things, but I'll, I'll spare everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anything else, you send me a link. We'll put them in the show notes. And um, yeah, also through the Producing with Purpose Instagram, we'll be putting out clips in the show and quotes and also some links through to that as well. So yeah, we'll wrap things up there. But dude, thanks so much for being on the show. That was It was just great to chat for an hour um, with like-minded people. It's always, always a pleasure. So thanks very much. It was fun. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. 